This morning, we're going to start with our scripture memory verse. Our topic is, do you believe practicing doctrine? And so we will start with our scripture memory verse. So join me in Titus 2.1. Titus 2.1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. We must teach. We must learn what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Last week, we talked a little bit about God's existence, and this week, we're going to dive in just a little more details into God's holiness. And in order to do that, I want to start with an excerpt from the Baptist Faith and Message that talks about God, and so I will read that to you here. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message. It says, there is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. We're going to dig in and talk about God's holiness. But as we do so, I want to start by telling you, God's holiness is itself, by definition, something that we can't fully grasp. It is beyond our understanding, beyond our ability to understand. So as we do so, we are going to right away acknowledge that there are some big limitations on our ability to understand God's holiness. If you want to know somebody, visit them at their house. I'm serious. There is something about being in somebody's house that you can really learn something about them. I could tell you that my house is a mess, but until you come and see it, you don't know what that means, right? If you want to know someone, experience them in their home, and you will know them much, much better. So, with that being in mind, I'm inviting you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Because what we're going to do in Revelation chapter 4 is we're going to take this opportunity to go and visit God in his throne room. Because if we want to know God's holiness, let's go look at the way he has demonstrated his holiness in his throne room. So Revelation chapter 4, it's actually part of what I would call a two-part vision. We have Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Revelation 4 presents God on the throne. Revelation 5 presents Jesus as God, the holy lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. And so those are the two pictures we have. We're going to focus on just the throne room itself in Revelation chapter 4, but If you want to read ahead, Revelation chapter 5 has more to do with this as well. So the picture of God's throne room. Let's read Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. 
Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All right. Revelation chapter 4, the invitation into God's throne room. The picture that we get, the picture that we first get here is the picture of God's throne room conveys both imminence and transcendence. And I will explain those terms here in just a minute. But the picture of God's throne room displays both imminence and transcendence. Imminence. We use this word to describe God. We say God is imminent. What we mean by that is that God is near, part of, within, operating in his creation. So the idea of imminence is that God is not just somebody who set the universe into motion and left it and said, see you later. No, God works within his creation. He is present. He is imminent in his creation. I want you to notice in verses 1 through 3, God's invitation to witness his holiness. The Apostle John, probably the last living apostle at the time that this was written, almost certainly the last living apostle, he had seen Jesus before. He had walked with Jesus before. But what God was going to reveal to him here, he had never seen the likes of before. God invites him. John says, after this, I looked, and there was a door standing open, an open door. John, John is invited to see God's presence. But I want you to notice who it is that invites John up. It's Jesus. The verse tells us that the one who had spoken to me earlier, that's a reference back to Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus was speaking to John, the one who had spoken to me earlier said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Jesus invites us to God's presence. And this is really important. You see, we're going to talk about God's holiness, his complete, utter difference from us. That's what his holiness really for, refers to, his complete separateness from us. He is nothing like us or we are really nothing like him. Jesus, though, is the one who invites us to God's holiness. 
1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is one mediator between God and man. There is one individual who is capable of bridging the gap between the holy God of the universe and our fallen sinful humanity. And that's Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is the one who allows us to approach God in his holiness. John invites us along with him as he writes Revelation. Look at verse 2, the way it's worded. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, John knew who that someone was. But his use of someone there is an invitation for us. He's saying, come along with me and witness the unfolding holiness of God. There's someone sitting there. Do you know who it is yet? Have you figured it out? And we're supposed to say, ah, that's God. Let's learn who this God is. The description is full of picturesque language. We see Jasper. Um, Jasper, the Greek word for Jasper, is just a greenish, opaque stone. We see ruby, a reddish, brown, or orange stone. We see a rainbow encircling the throne of God. But look at the rainbow. It's not a rainbow like anything we've seen before. It's a rainbow of one color, emerald. Whatever this is that John is seeing, we are supposed to recognize that this is beauty that surpasses anything we have ever, ever seen. God is holy. He is completely separate from us. He is unimaginable. But look also at the inhabitants of God's throne room. The inhabitants in verses 4 through 7 transcend imagination and yet are consistent with the God we know. We see 24 elders, not identified. We don't know who they are. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It's not about the elders. It's about the God of the universe sitting on the throne. Have you ever seen that where you're looking at something, you know there's something else going on on the side, but it just, whatever that is, I see it there, but you don't pay attention to it? That's the idea here. There are 24 elders, probably important people. John doesn't care because he's looking at the God of the universe. And when you look at the God of the universe, nothing else really matters. He does tell us a little bit about what they're wearing, and this is, I think, again, to remind us of the importance of God. They're wearing white garments. Why white garments? Because God is the one who purifies, who cleanses from sin. They're wearing crowns. Why crowns? Because God shares his glory. He provides the crowns. He provides the uh, reward for his people. In God's throne room, we see peals of thunder. Probably, John is trying to appeal to God on Mount Sinai itself. The idea of in God's presence is great strength, great power. Seven torches probably represent the Holy Spirit. And a glass sea for the floor, crystal clear. So I don't even know how to explain this picture to you other than what the text says. Can you imagine it though? God sitting on the throne, the glass sea, a floor of glass, 
a rainbow wrapped around him, but not a rainbow you're used to, a rainbow of emerald. Stones of jasper and ruby. 24 elders in white robes with crowns around him. It's reminiscent of Isaiah's experience in the throne room. Um, Isaiah's experience in God's throne room back in Isaiah 6 stretches our imagination. So we're going to go between Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 today quite a bit. But I want you to look at Isaiah 6, verses 1 and 2. So just a quick one. I don't have it on the screen here because it's just real quick. But verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Isaiah, working in the temple, had an experience unlike any experience he had ever had in the temple before. As he's working in the temple, he has a vision. He says he sees the Lord high and exalted. Remember, the temple was a big deal for Israel. For him to see something high and exalted, it means it's a bigger deal than Solomon's temple. He says he sees someone with the train of their robe filling the temple. So how many of you have ever worn like a cape or a robe? It's getting close to Halloween, right? Maybe you've thrown something on. This is a cape or a robe unlike anything we've ever imagined. It fills the entire room. The picture here that Isaiah is giving is that God is a king unlike anything he has ever seen before. God in his holiness, is transcendent. That's really what holiness means, is to be separate. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, So I'm a number theorist, and so if I get the opportunity to talk about something, number theory, I'm going to take it. So you have probably heard of the number pi. Many of you probably have. The number pi is what's actually called a transcendental number. Why is it transcendental? Because you cannot write down a polynomial. So high schoolers, you might know what that is. You cannot write down a polynomial equation to give the number pi. It is impossible to write down an equation that will give it to you. It transcends the real numbers because it's impossible to write it down in the form of a polynomial equation using normal numbers. It's completely separate. It's outside. It's impossible to get to. That's God's holiness, completely separate. Our only access to God's holiness is through Christ. And that's the picture we have in Revelation chapter 4, is that invitation from Christ, the open door, come up and see God's holiness. So let me give you an action step. Take a second and ask yourself today, how does the picture of God's throne room help me to better understand God's transcendence and imminence? God is holy, completely separate 
God's throne room displays transcendence. I don't know what an emerald rainbow looks like, but it sounds pretty cool to me. God's throne room exceeds our imagination. But as we go on in the verses, in Revelation 4, back in Revelation 4, in verses 8 through 11, what I want you to see in the following verses is that the activities in God's throne room convey complete holiness. Look in verse 8, back in Revelation chapter 4. What we see in verse 8 is we have these four living creatures beyond imagination, but what they say is significant. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. The threefold declaration of God's holiness reminds us that God is eternally God. And you might think, well, you just use God to define God. Yes, because no other word can define God. That's what it means for God to be transcendent. We can't approach God's holiness and understanding of God's holiness. It's beyond us, but we can work at it. Repeating the term three times is to emphasize it. It's to draw it out. If I told you that the other day I was out at the football stadium and I saw a big, huge, ginormous player, or big, 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 that's what these creatures are saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Greek word here is hagias. Hagias is a theological Greek word. It has, in other words, it has to do with God, and it would mean to separate something, to make it unique, to make it utterly separate for use in worship of God. Separated for God. What these creatures are saying is that God is himself separate. He is himself unique. He is himself unlike anything we can imagine. If we go back to Isaiah 6.3, I told you we'd hop around just a little bit. Back in Isaiah 6, verse 3, we have a very similar phrasing here. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Isaiah, we get the same statement. God is completely and utterly holy. The word for holy here in Isaiah is uh, kadosh, and it again means separate, unique, completely separate. Going back to Revelation, hopping back and forth. Look at John's titles for God. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty. God Almighty demonstrates God's complete, total dominance. He is capable of anything. He's described as who was and is and is to come. The great I am that we studied last week. The great I am of Exodus 3.14 is the God who is holy. Carol says the holiness of God speaks to God's existence as completely separate from his creation and at the same time to his pure and utterly incorruptible nature. 
Throughout the Bible, God's holiness is the basis for our understanding of his existence outside of time and space. God's holiness describes his complete separation from his creation. Verses 9 through 11 describe the 24 elders. And what I see in verses 9 through 11 is that the 24 elders remind us that God's holiness should lead us to action. The 24 elders take action. Every time these creatures decry, holy, 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 the 24 elders fall down. They fall down. They lay their crowns down, submitting to God, and they declare that he is worthy. Worthy speaks of being of great worth, worthy of glory, of honor, of power. And then it gives the reason why he's worthy. In this case, the reason God is worthy is because he's the creator. He uniquely created all things through his will. And beyond just merely creating, he gives them existence. The reason we exist today is one, we were created by God. And two, he chooses to continue to let us exist today and to continue to hold us in existence. They have their being because of God. So let me give you an action step. We're going to do this one together. What I want us to do is we're going to take a minute, and together we're going to recite Revelation 4.11, the song of the 24 elders. So let's say it together. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 4.11. The song of the 24 elders. You are worthy. You, God, are worthy. I want you to go back now to Isaiah 6 to Isaiah's picture of the throne room. I told you that the 24 elders take action. It turns out that Isaiah takes action. You see, God's holiness should be both terrifying and motivating. Both terrifying and motivating. We're going to read this part, and uh, so I've got it on the screen for you. Isaiah 6, verses 4 through 8. says, At the sound of their voices... The doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for with us? And I said, Here I am, send me. The first thing that I see is that when we begin to realize God's holiness, we're driven to cry, Woe is me. When we see God exalted, transcendent, our only response should be, 
Woe is me. I don't measure up. Have you ever tried to build something without a measuring tape? It's not a good idea. It doesn't work well. Um, or I don't know, maybe you're better at it than I am. In my case, it does not work well. A measuring tape is an important tool because it gives us something with which to measure. God's holiness should be our measuring tape. And guess what you're going to find? You're always going to come up short. If you measure yourself against God's holiness, you will find you always come up short. Paul Tripp says the holiness of God is the only reliable means of knowing ourselves. Only when we look at God's holiness can we actually know ourselves. Otherwise, we're just sort of aimlessly wandering about. When we understand the character of God, R.C. Sproul says, we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and helplessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may like, dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. Only when we look at God's holiness can we notice how sinful we are And only when we notice how sinful we are can we understand the significance that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for that sin. Realization of our sin should drive us to look to God for salvation. In verse 6, God provides a way for Isaiah to have the sin, the guilt removed. In verse 5, Isaiah said, woe is me. And in verse 6, God sends a seraphim with a coal from the altar, symbolic. The coal touches his lips. And God says, the guilt has been taken away. It's symbolic. When we accept Jesus Christ's death on the cross, the guilt is removed. And we no longer have to say, woe is me. Rather, instead... In verses 7 and 8, when we realize the significance of our salvation, we are driven to cry, here I am, use me. You see, the holiness of God defines God is so separate, we are sinners. God is pure, we are sinners. God is perfect, we are sinners. And we cry out, woe is me, I can't measure up to you, God. And God's response is, that's okay. Jesus came. He died on the cross to pay for your failure to measure up. I'll take away your guilt. God removes our guilt. And then the only proper response is, here I am. Use me. God, I have nothing to offer until you come and remove my guilt. Here I am, use me. Isaiah declared, here I am, send me. See, God's holiness ultimately gives us a mission. God is in the process of fixing our broken world. 
And ultimately, God invites us to be part of the restoration that can only come through the work of a true and holy God. I want you to jump way ahead to Revelation 22 in your Bibles. And I just want you to listen as I read from Revelation 22, because I want you to see what the end is. What is it that God is doing? Where is it that God is leading us? So listen to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Where is it that God's taking us? To an eternal kingdom with God on the throne. The holiness of God that we saw back in Revelation 4, that's where God is ultimately taking us, is to be part of his kingdom. So, we have a mission to be holy like God, to be used of God, to like Isaiah decry, here I am, use me. So let me give you an action step. Will you join me in recognizing your sin? Recognize that we fail to live up to God's holiness. And then boldly stepping out to declare, here I am, use me. God, your holiness means that you are so separate. We decry, woe is me. And then God says, I've taken your guilt. If you accept Jesus as your savior, I take your guilt. So will you cry out, here I am. Use me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the holy God. And beyond our comprehension beyond anything we can approach. But yet you have opened heaven through Jesus to take away our guilt, our failure to live up to your holiness. I pray, Lord, that we each here would respond to your holiness by saying, here I am, Lord. Use me. I know where this is going. This is going to an eternal kingdom. So use me here and now. Because I trust where you're taking this. Father, I pray that that would be our cry. Faced with the holiness of God, we recognize our sin, recognize our Savior, and cry out, use me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.